0: Eric texted me on Wednesday and told me that he had tested positive for COVID and I was happy to be able to to step in and, and be with you here this morning. You'll see that we're not continuing in the series from 2 Samuel, however. Uh, instead, we're going to give our attention to a New Testament passage from one of the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 Timothy. You'll see the text uh, in, your, in your bulletin. Uh, but it, it's not unrelated entirely to what we've been looking at in previous weeks, especially in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, which, uh, if you've been present with us, describes uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and the sinful web that, that ensued. Uh, yet David, uh, as we saw last week from 2 Samuel chapter 12, was confronted by the prophet whom God sent— uh, David uh, confessed, acknowledged his sin, and David was forgiven, though consequences continued to unfold. And Eric will uh, resume covering uh, some of those matters in the weeks to come. Uh, and again, the passage we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is not entirely unrelated. Uh, it describes Paul, uh, who also had to be confronted uh, because of his own sin. Here, Paul is reflecting on how he was confronted. Uh, The the account of Paul being confronted you find in Acts chapter 9, and here Paul is reflecting on that event in his life. Uh, And though Paul, as he was confronted, was confronted not just by any prophet, he was confronted by the prophet, by Jesus himself. And that confrontation uh, remained fully ingrained in Paul's Memory. Uh, Paul recounts it several times in Acts, subsequent to Acts chapter 9. Again, here in this passage, we find him reflecting on it as well. A memory that informed Paul's ministry as the model sinner who had received God's great mercy. So, with that in mind, let me read for us from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12, and I'll read for us through. Verse 17. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, as we consider your word this morning, uh, we pray that by your Spirit, uh, you would expose our own hearts, that you would address our own ignorance, uh, that you might lead us in faithful service to you we pray in Jesus name amen when we enter into a new place uh, maybe a new church for instance uh, often initial conversations can be somewhat awkward Uh, you don't know these people they don't know you and you have to make certain decisions as you navigate uh, conversations what what do I want these people to know about me What am I willing to disclose about myself to them? You have to consider what questions you're going to ask. What is it that you want to know about them? And it's good for us to consider this as we think about our relationships within the church. How do we present ourselves to others inside the church? How do we want to be known by those who are outside the church? What do we want others to know? Some of you may be familiar with the name John Owen, probably the uh, most prominent English theologian in the 17th century. Uh, He wrote volumes upon volumes. You look at men in that era and wonder how it is that they accomplished so much. He was a pastor Uh, for a time. He was the vice chancellor of Oxford University. He was a preacher to parliament. He was a great man, you might say. And in 1663, he received a letter from a church in Boston, Massachusetts. This was early colonial America. And this church was wanting Owen, as they said, to come over and help us. They're calling him to be their pastor. And here's how they describe themselves in that letter to John Owen, this uh, prominent English pastor and theologian. They say, the persons that call you... Are unworthy men of much infirmity and may possibly fall short of your expectation. Now, that's a great introduction. Uh, here is who we are. Here's the truth about us. Unworthy of much infirmity, likely to fall short of your expectation, not necessarily putting your best foot forward as you call such a man as John Owen. But if you know anything about John Owen's writing, the depth with which he wrote about the nature of sin and God's grace that answers that need because of sin, you would have a sense that Owen is a man who knew himself and such a description would endear him to them. Unworthy man of much infirmity, likely falling short of their own expectation. Now, he did not receive that call. He did not go to Boston, but surely it was not because of their description. Uh, they, They knew themselves as John Owen knew himself, as is evident in his writings. And that is how we should know ourselves, It's how Paul understands himself, and I want us to reflect on what that means as we know ourselves in this way and how that informs our life together in the church. Uh, What do I want you to know about me? Uh, What should I know about you? Uh, That I am unworthy, uh, that I have much infirmity, and that surely I will fall short of your expectations. But you see, We can say that with great honesty, great humility, and also great hope, taking Paul as our example. Here's how Paul introduces himself. As the foremost of sinners, a living example of God's gracious patience. Is that basic to your self-awareness? Is that basic to your awareness of others? Foremost, we are sinners, and as we know ourselves in this way, and as we allow others to know us in this way, we will truly love and forgive, welcome and invite, minister and serve, and worship with praise and great gratitude. And so as we consider this, I just want to make two broad points. And the first one is this, the doctrines we believe should be personalized. That you, we should be able to state them in terms of what they mean for ourselves. And I think that might counter the way we tend to think about doctrine. We tend to think about doctrine as technical teaching, uh, maybe complex concepts that are often difficult for us to grasp. And there are difficult doctrines to grasp that are found within God's revelation. Paul elsewhere says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There are things that are difficult in God's Word to understand, but that's not how Paul talks about basic doctrine here. This this foundational truth that demands and calls for personal reflection. Especially within the pastoral epistles, which make up 1 Timothy and the two letters that follow, 2 Timothy and Titus, you find this this repeated phrase about trustworthy sayings, like you find here in verse 15. You find it two other times in, in Uh, 1 Timothy, you find it a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 1. You find it also in chapter 4, verse 9. And you find the same phrase in 2 Timothy and and Titus, trustworthy sayings that deserve full acceptance. And and that phrase, these are letters written towards the end of Paul's ministry. And and this phrase is a marker. It's an indicator of apostolic doctrine that must be maintained within the life of the church. church. Core statements of faith that must be affirmed for every Christian. Now, let me say a little bit about the context here and why this matters so much for Paul. If you have a Bible open, you can see this in the verses that come just before. And up in verse 3... Uh, Paul urges Timothy, he says, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then he, he compares that or he contrasts that in verse 10 to what he calls sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. So there's good doctrine, there's right doctrine, there's sound, there's healthy doctrine, orthodox, right? Correct right doctrine. And then there is this other doctrine, heterodoxy, right, different, that Paul is warning them against. Now, making distinctions like this in our own day may sound very intolerant. Uh, Who are you to question someone's deeply held personal beliefs just because They're different from your own. But you see, according to Paul, it's it's not intolerance. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you look up in verse 5 again, Paul says that the aim of our charge is love. It's not recognizing a, a difference in order to simply condemn or dismiss But it's a concern for the implication of that different doctrine that does not, Paul says, issue forth in love. In other words, different doctrine will lead to a different life. Different doctrine will lead to something different than love. Now, we'll talk a little bit more later about what that is. But the doctrines we believe, Paul is saying, will deeply impact our lives. The way you live is related to what you most deeply believe. Now, I think it's worth noting that there are some doctrines that we might differ on and still can be fully assured of of another's sincere faith in Christ Jesus. And you see this within the history of the church. Differences over matters such as baptism. Uh, Differences over the sovereignty of God and exactly how that works itself out in the course of history. There are differences over eschatology concerning the return of Christ. I have certain convictions about those things, uh, things I believe the Bible teaches, but there might be differences among us on some of those matters. And there are certain things that we can disagree on, but not what Paul says here. Uh, Here in verse 15... Paul says, it is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, he's saying, here is a doctrine that must be standard for every Christian within the church, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then notice that Paul provides this, a per, this personal statement within the same sentence, of whom I, am the foremost... Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. How do you think of Paul, the apostle? Maybe you think of him as the foremost of all the apostles. Maybe you think of him as the foremost of those who wrote the New Testament. 13 of the 27 collected volumes are authored by Paul. Maybe you think of Paul as the foremost of those who spread the gospel in the early church. He did. Maybe you think of him as the foremost of those who suffered for Jesus and you read about his sufferings throughout the New Testament, but Paul sees himself foremost as the chief of sinners. Now there's some things here and maybe you noted this as it was read, that might seem to lessen Paul's own sense of the gravity of his sin that might be mitigating circumstances for the sin that he lists here. After all, in verse 12, he says that Christ has judged him faithful, appointing to me to to his service. Uh, Towards the end of verse 13, he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief we don't have time to go into all the details here, but I think it's worth pointing out, and you can read and reflect on this, that Paul makes these statements distinguishing himself from the teachers of false doctrine that are described above. But these may sound like excuses to us. Yes, Paul says, I was a blasphemer. Yes, I was a persecutor. Yes, I was an insolent opponent. But I didn't know... I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Of course, Paul, uh, in particular, is talking about his former rejection of Jesus. He's talking about his persecution of the church, pursuing believers to throw them in prison, giving approval when Christians were executed. And again, you can read about this prior to Paul's own confrontation by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And if you can remember that confrontation in Acts chapter 9 and what happens Jesus appears to Paul as he's on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians and he speaks to Paul and the light from heaven shines around Paul and Paul is blinded by this light and do you remember what he asks he asks who are you Lord he's ignorant a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But Paul is not pleading ignorance as though it somehow lessens his guilt. Actually, Paul's plea of ignorance amplifies his own guilt. See, ignorance in the Bible testifies to just how far from God you actually are. Uh, Paul himself describes this in places like Romans 1, uh, where he says that what might be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. But Paul says they suppress that truth that they know in unrighteousness and become fools, ignorant. Uh, likewise, Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 18, describes ignorance as a symptom of hardened hearts. Ignorance not simply in the sense of lacking information, uh, but an ignorance that reveals the need for renewal, for regeneration, for new hearts. And here Paul is saying, that was me. Acting ignorantly, in my unbelief. No excuse. Think of Paul ignorant. Paul in Philippians 3 describes himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. A Paul for for his zeal as a Pharisee. Paul studied in God's law knowing his word just like those teachers of this different doctrine that he describes before. And verse 6, wandering away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, but ignorant of God's grace in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is amplifying his sin. Yes, I was ignorant, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Though I knew God's word, I refused to see what was right in front of me. That Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And now, Paul humbly says, as one who knows, as one who now knows himself, of whom I am the foremost. I think I've mentioned before that my wife Angie and me are graduates of the University of Georgia. Uh, And I know that uh, Jack is a Georgia fan from living in Georgia in earlier days. And Uh, Jack and I have talked about that after Georgia recently won the national championship, and in the right context, if I were to say, Georgia, Jack would know to respond, Bulldogs. There's this cheer that happens in the stadium where half shouts the first and the the other 40,000 respond with the second part, or in this context, maybe the better known cheer is, we are, and the other half, the other 50,000 reply, Penn State. See, these two statements belong together. Uh, One without the other doesn't make sense. If you say, we are, and there's only silence, it, it doesn't work. And the same is true for this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There cannot be silence after that. It demands a response. And it demands a response from you and me, of whom I in the foremost, loudly, with enthusiasm, with conviction and unity. You see, to know Christ Jesus as Savior with true conviction and passion. You must know yourself as a sinner with equal conviction and equal passion. Now, this happens in different ways in our lives. Maybe for you, it began with knowing Jesus. You grew up in the church. Uh, You grew up reading the Bible with parents who taught you. You went to Sunday school. You went to church every Sunday, and you heard about Jesus Uh, Maybe for some of you here, it's rather new. You've heard something about Jesus and you're here and, and you're wanting to learn more. But he won't be much of a savior for you until you understand how you're much of a sinner. There'll be no deep conviction or passion for him unless you know with equal conviction yourself as a great sinner. But for some of us maybe it works the other way around. It didn't begin with so much with knowing Jesus instead you began to have a very deep sense, a painful awareness of your own sin and guilt. And maybe you even came here this morning with a deep awareness of those things, guilt and shame. You're very aware of how great a sinner you are more than any other you could possibly imagine and maybe that leaves you with a sense of despair of hopelessness maybe of self-pity but you see that's not Christianity either you must with equal conviction know that Christ Jesus has come as a savior of great sinners like you and like me the end of verse 16, Paul talks about believing in him for eternal life. Probably a, a better way to capture that preposition is, is with, with uh, instead of in him, believing on the basis of him or upon him. It's not simply that you believe in Jesus. It's not simply that you believe who he is or, or you believe the details of his life and what he's done, but that you believe upon him. You believe on the basis of Him that you have eternal life because of who He is, because of what He's done in behalf of sinners like you and me. John Newton, probably a name most of you are familiar with, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. You may know something of his past. He was uh, quite a notorious individual before his conversion uh, from a young age, he was a sailor, uh, with all the associated sins of sailors at uh, sea, as he himself uh, fully admitted. Not only a sailor, he was a slave trader before he became a Christian. And one of his last sermons, he was 82 years old, and he said this, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great savior all right would we be so clear throughout the whole of our own lives john newton actually wrote the epitaph that's on his own tombstone it's really a monument to god's grace as he wanted it to be here's what it says john newton clerk once an infidel and libertine a servant of slaves in africa was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had so long labored to destroy. See, John Owen wanted to be remembered that way so much he had those words engraved on his tombstone for all to read. Now, just to be clear here, this word foremost first chief, you'd probably recognize the Greek word, it's protos. Think of the word prototype. In a sense, that's what Paul is saying about himself. Uh, that he is, the, he is the protos, he's the, the prototype. He, he is the type of sinner, when he hears that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinner, when he, when he hears sinner the first thought he has is of himself and if we're to say it and mean it it means the image that comes into my mind must be me i am always the first and best example of a sinner that i could possibly know all right the doctrines we believe must be personalized and this leads to the last point that i want to make that when we personally embrace this doctrine it begins to pervade our lives and i want to talk about the ways this doctrine now pervades our lives and in some of the things that paul says here the conviction that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost will be evident in some particular ways and how we relate to god and how we relate to one another it will look like humility sincere love and genuine worship you know there there is a there is a degree to which we may not even be aware of certain beliefs that we hold they've been deeply ingrained and worked into our hearts and minds throughout our lives and we're not really critically reflective on what exactly is we believe and how it all fits together but it sure does come out in our lives in some surprising ways at times. And it's true for these different doctrines that Paul mentions in the verses prior to these. Uh, Those who promote speculation, he says in verse 4, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Those who wander away into vain discussions that did not result in love. Uh, I teach at Westminster Theological Seminary. We're about to start a new semester uh, coming off of uh, a semester not long ago. Some of our students just finished a January term. I taught a a course during uh, that time as well. And before exams, I I always uh, exhort our students to uh, don't simply answer the question, show me that you know it. I learned that there's, even with, even with essay questions, there's a way that you can provide a two or three sentence answer that's, that's true in itself, but it doesn't demonstrate to me that you really get it. I want you to show me your work. Demonstrate to me that you truly know it. Now, even for younger uh, uh, children here, if you're studying math, Uh, There comes a point where simply memorizing multiplication tables or whatever it may be, uh, the teacher's not going to be satisfied with that. Uh, The teacher wants you to show your work. Demonstrate to me that you know how the equation works. That 9 times 4 is 36. Well, one way you can demonstrate your understanding of that equation. Uh, is to ensure that it works. Check, check your work. To ensure that it works is to, uh, um, uh, to divide 36, the answer, by four or nine, and, and you get the, the other number. You're showing that the equation holds, that you understand the equation, and both sides of the equation hold. The relationship holds within the equation. And we can do something like this with our doctrine. There's a relationship that should hold between what you say you believe and how we live. We can work back to how we live to the doctrines that we believe. The way we relate to others, to our relationship with God, to the doctrines that added up, when, when they're added up, equal those things. Do you see that in your own life? Paul is saying, if what's coming out of the equation is not humility, if what's coming out of the equation is not sincere love, if it's not genuine worship, if that isn't what your doctrine adds up to, something's wrong in the equation. The right answer to the combination of these two statements, the right answer is, to Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, multiplied by whom I am the foremost, equals these things. Humility, love, and genuine worship. Again, remember Paul's concern, verse 3, different doctrine, when when it's all added up, leads to something very different. And so think about this in your own life for a minute are there other sayings that you've accepted that are working themselves out in your life when you're angry with others if you're constantly disappointed if you find yourself always in despair as you think of your life when you talk poorly about others when you think highly of yourself maybe it's the combination of christ came into the world to judge sinners of whom that other person is obviously the foremost or maybe it's Christ Jesus came to the world to make my life better and he hasn't yet and I'm not so sure how much longer I'm going to wait see those things will never add up to humility love and worship knowing that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners multiplied by of whom i am the foremost will when our children were younger in grade school they were at a christian school and every quarter the school they were in would give out an award various awards but one of the awards was christ-like character award and uh, our children each Got that award at some point or another. Uh, I think every kid just about ended up getting that war award at some point or another. But uh, my wife and I would always laugh because we knew our children, uh, and we would joke at home about the desperately needing Jesus award. Who 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 won that award this this week? Uh, who gets that award? And that fits with what. Paul is saying here. Look at verse 16. We are on display. Paul is saying about this, this about himself, on display as sinners who greatly need God's patience. Examples, always in need of grace. And we need to ask, do I allow others to know me like that? Am I a good example of one who needs Jesus? Maybe they don't know all the details. Paul doesn't share all of them here, but do they see it in your humility do they witness that in your love do they hear it in your worship that flows from your love of Jesus think about this what do others see in you that's valuable to them Paul is saying here's the value of my ministry the value in my ministry is it that I wrote a whole lot of the New Testament? Is it that I traversed Asia Minor telling others about Jesus? Is it, that I, is it that I contended against false doctrine? He did all of those things, and all of those things mattered and were important. But here Paul is saying, the value of my ministry, most basically, most fundamentally, is that others can look at me. Others can come to know me and conclude if there is grace and mercy for a person such as this in Christ Jesus, then surely there is hope for me too. And that must be true for us in the church. The more we get to know one another, the more we'll see each other's need of Jesus. Much infirmity, a causing disappointment, weaknesses, The more we'll know what it means that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the more we know one another. And it's an opportunity for us to extend the grace of Jesus within our church to his glory. Humility and love and also worship, the last verse, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It sounds conclusive, yet here is Paul simply in the first chapter of first timothy but how could he not conclude what he's just said uh, without a statement such as this his knowledge of himself as a sinner magnifies god's grace and worship at god's glory is the response christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost and that must be true for us, reflected in who we are as a church, as we rejoice together in what He's done, who He is, even for us, as the foremost of sinners. Let's pray together. Gracious, gracious and almighty God, we ask that You would continue to hold before us both who Jesus is and who we are, Lord, that as we see the depths of our sin and its working in our lives, as we strive against it, even as those who know you and even as you are at work conforming us ever more into the image of Jesus, that we would see how far we are from him and from his likeness, Uh, that we would long for your return. And that until then, we would rejoice in the great hope that we have in Christ as our righteousness, Uh, as our substitute, put himself in our place, that he might be condemned, that we might be restored to you and rejoice. Lord, fill us with the love that flows from that knowledge, fill us with the humility that comes from that knowledge and the worship that comes from that knowledge even as we conclude our worship today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.